If you're not already a subscriber to the London Review of Books, now is the perfect time to try. Sign up for just £5 a month and treat yourself to some of the world's best writing from Europe's leading magazine of culture and ideas. Subscribe now while you're listening to this podcast at lrb.me forward slash now. That's lrb.me forward slash now. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. My name is Bill Drummond. He's Dave Keenan. I'm here to have a conversation with him. But there's something that I've written in the past few days that I want to read. David here doesn't know what it's going to be, so you're going to hear it. Actually, what he doesn't know, I've actually put this out on the internet at at about four o'clock this afternoon, so some people have already seen it. Some kind of mean fuck. So, (laughs) So we're here because of a book that David's written called For the Good Times. For the Good Times and Me. For the Good Times is a song written by Chris Christopherson in 1968. For the Good Times was a hit single released by Perry Como in 1973. For the Good Times is a novel written by David Keenan in 2018. 2018? 2017? 2017, 2018, yeah, two years, yeah, yeah. For the Good Times was a novel published by Faber and Faber in 2019. Is it published yet? It is. Is it? Technically. For the Good Times might be the most brilliant novel written in the 20th first century so far. He didn't know what I was going to say. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Go up your honest, I never saw that one coming. It is certainly the most brilliant novel I have read in the 21st century so far. So that's me sort of slightly uh, stepping back. Bedging your best a little bit. How long does the 21st century have to go? Another eight years? It could happen. But then I'm steeped in and compromised by the subject matter of this novel. And maybe it is because I'm a man and of a certain age. And have an ongoing interest in man's relationship with a thing we call God. I first read the novel a few weeks ago. I'm reading it again now, as in the past few days. Not now, not literally now. <laughs> and while I'm reading it, I'm making notes in the margin. Where's my copy of the book? Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's mine. That's my copy of the book here. There's notes all the way through, especially in the back few pages there. Wow. These are the things I'm going to be asking you about. Damn, it's a pendus. <laughs> and I'm scheduled to be doing an in-conversation with David Keenan in front of an audience at the London Review Bookshop at 7pm on Wednesday, the 27th of February, as in tonight. The novel is written as an unreliable rambling memoir of someone doing time in the maze sometime in the 1980s. But into the 90s, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. that's accurate, yeah, yeah, yeah. okay. This someone was a member of the IRA. Yes, that's accurate. I have an associate, and I've put that with a capital A, who did time in the maze sometime in the 1980s. 
This associate was a member of the IRA. I would, I would stay in the Europa Hotel in Belfast sometimes in the 1980s. From the disco bar on the top floor of the Europa Hotel, all of Belfast stretched out before me. Have you been in that disco bar? Yeah, it's beautiful, actually. Because uh-huh. okay. you don't mention it in the book, you see. Yeah, a lot of people have brought it up afterwards, actually, um, but we can talk more about that. Okay. The security lights surrounding the maze could be seen on the horizon. The Europa Hotel is a fixture in this novel, as is the maze. And when I read this on the bus coming here, I thought, maybe some people don't know what the maze is. The maze is a prison in the north of Ireland. You know, they didn't say Northern Ireland there. Yeah, nice, nice, nice one. Right. <laughs> to patronise. Yeah, yeah thanks, mate. <laughs> this novel is punctuated with shards of shimmering truth concerning the lot of man and the Irish and the myth of Ireland. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Right. Myth of Ireland, yes. David Keenan and I are both Scottish, but to those living in parts of Ireland, and parts of Scotland, our names mark us out as coming from very dri- different traditions. Yes. There's a big line here. Mm. <laughs> Theoretically. These traditions fester. Mm-hmm. Maybe they fester less now. Possibly. I gave my associate, with a capital A, a copy of For the Good Times to read. Some of the notes in the margin are based on the comments that my associate told me. I wanted to have 40 questions to choose from to ask Dave Keenan on our in conversation with. These 40 questions evolved from the notes in the margin and into many more than 40. And many of those were not questions, but quotes from the novel that triggered all sorts of thoughts and responses in my mind. But before I list those more than 40 questions, notes, and quotes, I would like to misquote Chuck Berry. Roll over James Joyce and tell Samuel Beckett the news. (laughs) 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 Or should that be a misquote of Jimi Hendrix? Move over, Leopold. Tell, let Samuel take over. <laughs> they didn't respond to that one. <laughs> you got it, didn't you? Yeah, it's Can somebody else get it? Fucking <laughs> hell. I think he got it. I thought this was literature in yeah. here. No, he got it. <laughs> Maybe I'm. Okay, Samuel's the main guy. It's Samuel's voice through this book, as in Leopold's the voice through. Fucking oh, other book that defined Irish literature for the 20th century. This, it takes a Scottish man to define the, the book that's literature for Ireland. For, oh, I shouldn't say that now because there might be Irish people in here that I don't care, I'll say it. <laughs> okay, move, o- move over Leopold, let Samuel take over. I, s- I spelt it with the X. Okay. Samuel. Okay. Yeah, um, Bel- Belfast what, what? boy is Blakey and Fallen Angel. So, so my 40 questions, as I, as I implied, there was, there was a lot more than 40. But the first few 
are based and, and, and they're sort of, you can, there's maybe a negative coming in here, so you've got to deal with the negative, okay? You, you can have to, you know. I can handle I, I, it, mate. I've, I've, I've given you the... Yeah, uh, um, you gave me enough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> how old are you? 47. 47. Thus, how old were you when the events in... Okay, the events in this book take place. He's in prison, Samuel. This is, you know, the, the voice of the, the, the unreliable memoir. And he's is, is in the maze in the 80s and into the 90s, I guess. Yes, I But he's yes. looking back to the 70s when he was one of the boys. Yes. In the IRA. And um, so I was wondering if you, you know, how, how much you were party to what was going on at the time. Well, um, I should explain. My, my, um, my, my dad's family came from the Ardoin in Belfast which was one of this kind of the ground zero for what happened in Belfast in terms of the troubles. Um, but we, during the 70s and the 80s, we did not travel to Belfast. It was a dangerous place. It was a war zone. So what happened is that the family would travel to us. And at that point, we lived in Airdrie. So we would have people over there all the time. Sometimes it seemed to me, and I was never privy to this, but sometimes it seemed to me that there were people who were on the run. And we actually had, this sounds crazy when I think about it, because I took it for granted so much, but we had a secret annex. And the word the secret annex almost makes me think about Anne Frank's diaries, the secret annex. But we had a secret annex in which my father would put a bookcase in front of, filled with books. And in that would occasionally live family members and other people from Belfast. And so me and my brother, I mean, it's right, and the thing is, to get to the secret annex, you had to walk through me and my brother's bedroom. So every night you'd wake up and there'd be some pissed Irish guy like staggering through with a fag and a couple of cans and he would always be like, mate, do you want, you should, do you want a beer? Or I'm like, mate, I'm fucking 13. I don't want a beer, but I'll hang out with you. So me and my brother would sit in this like annexed off loft space and kind of listen to their tales of, of what was happening in Belfast at the time. But they would also, it would also be like a sort of initiation into manhood. There would always be things like, do you know how to throw a punch, son? I'm 13. <laughs> and they would be, oh, keep your, keep your uh, arm loose to the last moment, you know, and then smack them. That, that's in the book. Yeah, it is, exactly. <laughs> these, are, these are true lessons. And they would, uh, they would all smoke with gold B&H, 20 B&H gold. And they would even show you how to smoke and stuff like this. And it was an incredible initiation. And did, and did they keep it in the top pocket like that? Top bin. Yeah. Top bin is what they called it. 20 B&H in the top bin. And I began, these guys were stylish. You know, they looked sharp, they all were wearing suits, they were all into Perry Como. And this was my, my uh, initiation to masculinity. And I, I was completely in awe, my jaw was on the floor at these guys and the lessons that I had. And also the fact that they were coming from this war zone, but seemed so resilient. So still in love with life, able to say Como's a genius, this is how you smoke, this is how we drink, this is how we do it. Okay, and the resilience okay. was amazing. Okay, 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 okay. I've got to stop you there, okay? Because I've, 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 got, I've, got, I've got to get... No. Were you in the British Army? Now, hang on, before... I asked this question because my associate, who did time in the maze as a member of the IRA, asked me if you'd been in the British Army. Have you ever been in the British Army? <laughs> You know, I was in the Cub Scouts. I don't know if that counts, but I'd have to say, no, I was not in the British Army. You know? Why? Why did he wonder that? Okay, okay. I was in the Cub Scouts, you know. But, Be prepared. And... But what's interesting about it, let me, let me take a little bit of a diversion. 
actually the Cub Scouts and the Boys Brigade were actually super nationalist, semi-militaristic organisations. And in a, not in a bad way, but what... No, no, no. No, 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 no. no. They won't know what the Boys Brigade are. But, but let me explain. They're organisations for young boys. And I think what they do is they try to channel that aggression, that adolescent madness into something reasonable. But the interesting thing about the Boys Brigade and the Cub Scouts is actually they became the breeding grounds for the UVF and for a lot of the loyalist paramilitaries in Northern Ireland because they instilled very similar values, militaristic, nationalistic, you know? But no, I was never in the British Army, <laughs> just so you know. <laughs> okay, this is another one from my associate. Did you read East End gangster books? Never. Okay, fine. No. Cool. I'm pleased, all right? <laughs> Are you into comics? Yes, massively. Okay, this is an issue with him. My, my, my associate is very concerned about this and wants to set the record straight here, all right? He tells me it was the loyalists who, were, who would read comics while in jail, jail, while the IRA would be educating themselves by reading books about Cuba. <laughs> you know, this is a very interesting point. It's a, it's a very interesting point. Now, and what I've come to realise, you know, let me, let me be up front about this. See, when I'm writing a book, I do not do research. Because I... Th- oh, no, I mean, you're laughing. But research is an excuse for not inventing. I'm a fiction writer. I'm not writing documentary books about the fucking troubles. This book is not about the troubles, per se. And when, as soon as I think I'm researching, I realise this is an excuse for not inventing. So, it was not about that. But at the same time, I do think, and this is a cliche that he's repeating a little bit, and I understand it, because I think what happens is republicanism is seen as more cultured, and is seen as having a culture. And so many books are written about republicanism. Loyalism is seen as something like idiots, vile, racist, blah, blah, blah. And, and, and doing press-ups while they're Exactly, in but you know what? I don't think that's strictly true. We can get into this thing because we're getting to a point of tribalism, and I don't believe that either side which is one of the things my book is about, was committed to ideology. There's a tribalism on both sides. So being a loyalist, actually, in so many occasions, is not much more worthy than being a Republican because you join your team and you fight for your area in Belfast. Okay. But, but let's wait. But when we finish with, 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 with comic books... Um, so, yeah, I do... Uh, when I would read accounts in the maze... There was always these guys that wanted to indoctrinate in your Marxist politics. Yeah. And they would always give you something like Firepower in Angola. That book exists. Oh, I know it does. You know, it does. It exists. And I think I read about it. There's an amazing book called um, Nor Meekly Serve My Time. Oral History of the H-Block. Mind-blowing. Absolutely mind-blowing. I read it when I was younger. Absolutely mind-blowing. And they talk about these fucking books. They'd be like, hey, there's Firepower in Angola. And who the fuck would not want to read Swamp Thing if your only <laughs> option was Firepower in Angola? You know what I mean? Now, just, just so you know, Swamp Thing is probably the greatest graphic novel ever written. I agree! Except, <laughs> except, this book is a better graphic novel than Swamp Thing. And it doesn't even have any pictures. Best blurb ever! <laughs> um, uh, this, is, this, is, this is, you know, I don't know if it's true. I haven't researched this. He's maybe one. Look, this, this mate of mine... This associate of mine, I went round to his place, I knocked on his door. <laughs> my name's Bill. That says something about my, you know, the past 300 years, okay? Why I'm called Bill and not Liam, okay? 
And I went to his door. He answered the door wearing a sash. Now, that means he knows I'm coming to the door. He's got a sash on. I'm going, where the fuck did he get that sash on? Who did he kill to wear that sash? So... It, it, it's loaded, all right? Yeah, yeah. So he might be winding me up here. Possibly. Right? <laughs> He's saying, Ardoin, not the No Ardoin. fucking way. Ah, let me He's think. talking <laughs> shit. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I've finally got the moment where I can deflate this guy's bullshit. It's never Ardoin, it's always the Ardoin. It reminds me of that guy, Harry Matthews. What's his name? The guy, the repo guy. Am I right? Am I going to remember his name? Is it Harry? It's Harry Matthews. And he wrote, My Life in CIA. And he was always like, it's never the CIA, it's CIA. We know the Ardoin, it's always the Ardoin. Okay. Never okay. the, never okay. Ardoin. Okay, I, I, I'm prepared to accept this. I'm prepared. The Falls Road, the Shank Hill, it's always a that. Look, look, I'm prepared to accept this. Are you sure this guy was in jail? <laughs> but I actually think he might have done this to me like he wore that sash at the nah, door. he set you up, to, mate. To set me up. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know, I've got nothing. I'm not going to go up there and knock on the door and say, I'm Bill Drummond. Is this the Ardoin or is it Ardoin? <laughs> <laughs> They're going to see me coming. They're going to know you were born to support Rangers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a Tim. Sorry. <laughs> right. Actually... No, I won't go into that. All right. <laughs> Spring 1967. A Scottish team got the first Scottish team that ever got to the European Cup finals. It was in Portugal. I sat down to watch it. I thought I'd rise above my tribal instincts. I put on the Drummond Tartan scarf. I watched that match. And I celebrated. I went into school the next day with the drum and tartan scarf on. And Big Dougie King, because I wasn't big then, Big Dougie King said, I'll see you at playtime. <laughs> at at playtime, I can still remember that fist getting closer and closer and closer to me. And that was the end. I'm sorry here for anybody who's... My support of Rangers waned. As that fist got closer. <laughs> Not that I became a Tim. <laughs> became a Tim. <laughs> but but I, I support my, my local team, Queen of the South. You know, so. And Tim means you support. Well, you're a Catholic and you support Celtic or whatever. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, you're a Hun. Yeah. <laughs> Huns and Tims. We'll get to that. <sighs> See this book is some of the best quotes. Not only is it the greatest novel that I've um, read so far this century. Of course, I, I, I haven't read them all, you know. <laughs> You've read enough, mate. <laughs> <laughs> but some of the lines in this book, they just go, boof! You just think, fuck. That book. And, I, I, and it, did make me, it, it did make me think, at what point does a book become a classic? You know, the book comes out, it gets some good reviews. You know, does it take 10 years? Is it, you know, at what point is it studied in, you know, people are doing A-level 
English literature, and um, and this book's this book's happening. You know, you know, when does it become um, of mice and men or whatever? You know, but and, and you know, for me, if he was to go out tonight and be run over and killed, it's fine. <laughs> He's written this book. You know. <laughs> He, he was telling me earlier about the book he's working on. I'm thinking, oh, fuck that. You've fucking done this one. <laughs> you know? You know, that, that's enough. Um, but riddled throughout this book is all these Pat and Mick jokes. Now, obviously, none of us... You're one gen, two generations away from being Irish, yeah? Well, my dad's from yeah. the Don, so oh, yeah, I'm okay, like a generation okay. away, I guess. But, but, yeah. but we're not allowed to say Pat and Mick jokes, in a sense, and nobody here is. But this book is riddled with them. Where do they come from? Where did you get... Pat and Mick jokes are, are jokes about the Irish, where the Irish are the, you know, the, 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 the thing of the joke. And, 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 and just... Ever so often, bang, it goes into... It's going through the heaviest bit. The heaviest stuff is going on in this book. And suddenly, there's a Pat and Mick joke. Well, I I believe... I came to believe that those jokes were survival strides for for living in a war zone. They were able to laugh at their own culture. And I think that's a huge strength that a culture has when a culture is able to see how ridiculous it is and use that as a survival strategy or some kind of like sort of release of pressure to let it go on, but also I began to see the syntax of Irish jokes, how people told jokes, their delivery was a performance. Now, how do the Irish tell stories? I'm talking about my father's family. How they tell stories is performative. It's a performance. I'm talking about being in that secret annex. They would tell you a joke or they would relay a story and the whole thing was a performance. There would be different voices. There would be a really funny way of telling. They'd drop into a joke. They'd sing a song. I wanted to capture all these ways of performing a story. But also, I began to realise that working class patter is more modernist, more genuinely modernist than the most modernist avant-garde literature. You need to listen to my Uncle Sammy tell a story. You're like, what the fuck? This is avant-garde shit. Because, hang on, hang on. Your Uncle Sammy. Your Uncle Sammy. Hang on. Is your Uncle Sammy... Samuel in this book? No, but I use the same names. I have an uncle called Sammy. I have an uncle called Barney. My dad's called Tommy. One of his daughters called Barney. It's Tommy. Tommy's... Okay, we'll go into that. (laughs) (laughs) One of the reasons is it's it's not autobiographical, but I wanted to write with real people and real names that made me engage on a deeper level than they would have if I'd made up their names. It made me be able to engage with what I got from them and what I believed they were going through. And also, I inherited my love for language and storytelling from these people who came from this war zone and yet could tell you a story. And it sounded like the most exciting thing ever. I mean, man, Ellen got treated for post-traumatic stress disorder. The same people coming back, the same thing that people coming back from Iraq are dealt with from living in Belfast. Yet at the same time, her brothers were able to talk about it like it was the best fun ever even as they're suffering. And I've gone back to accounts of what happened in the Troubles, and again and again, people say, it was exciting. It was mental. And one of the things that I wanted to get with the book was, it was the first time a lot of people in Belfast had TVs. So they're watching John Wayne, it's fucking True Grit, it's fucking The Searchers. 
And then the next thing you know, start the troubles. You're talking about um, Battle of the Bogside in Derry in like 69 on TV. Everyone sees it. And people, what I realised in Belfast is people became consciously aware that they were on TV. Almost for the first time ever. That their protests, that their troubles were being televised. And what it resulted in, they began styling. You turn up for a riot with a fucking, like, uh, like, like oh, pocket here. You're being aged, looking good, knowing you're going to be lobbing a fucking grenade, you know what I mean? They were aware of how they were coming across. And that's what I wanted to play with, that idea. They realised they were getting filmed. Well, some of the great points for me, not, I mean, I say great points, some of the traumatic points for me was seeing how the troubles played out live on the news. The Milltown Cemetery attack, the Colonel murder afterwards, the shooting at the, the, the assassination of the IRA members in uh, Gibraltar. These are all live on TV. Suddenly it becomes a performance. And then, it, and then I wanted to push it further. I, I began to realise their own masculinity becomes a performance. And they're performing for each other. And this is what escalates the whole problem. Being somewhat... Diving in somewhere else in this, being somewhat older than you, and being of an age that the characters in this book are, I guess... They're roughly about your age. Yeah, yeah, they, uh, are, so, they are roughly about your age. So Samuel, Sammy, who is the... Uh, the, the it's his memoir that he's writing while he's in prison. And uh, Tommy is his mate, his hero he looks up to. And, I, you know, if you, you're going to read this book, I won't say what happens to Tommy and, mm-hmm. what, you know, but, 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 but Tom, and, and they're about, as you're saying, about looking good, stylish, but it's set in the early 70s. And because I'm of that age, I'm thinking, this doesn't make sense to me because I would see the Irish show bands you know, the show bands of the 60s and the early 70s, who, and for those of you who don't know, Irish show bands would come to your town and come to Scotland, come to where I was living at the time, and they'd play all the covers of the day, all, all the songs of the hits of the day, and they'd still be wearing these stylish clothes, but we all thought they were naff and crap and whatever. And, and then there's this recurring riff in the book of Perry Como, yes. that they all look up to Perry Como. Now, Perry Como, for those of you that don't know, is, is, is a, uh, an, an American singer. Uh, uh, he's not Frank Sinatra, but he's kind of up there with Sinatra. He's actually slightly older than Sinatra. I don't know if you know this. But, and, um, and they all idolize him. And they idolize him in this book because he's faithful to his wife. He doesn't drink, and he doesn't. Well, he doesn't obviously. Doesn't, doesn't swear. Doesn't he swear. Doesn't, but 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 the, the guys in the book, fucking. I won't, <laughs> I won't try and do a Belfast accent. Uh, but uh, you need to go to the toilet. All right. <laughs> he understands what we're talking about. Uh, he doesn't swear. He doesn't drink, and he's faithful to his wife. And everybody in the book drinks, swears, and are unfaithful to their wives all the time. But they hold Perry Como up. Now, one of the things, you start the book in 1972, Perry Como didn't have, it didn't have, it wasn't a hit until 1973. No, but no, I don't start the book in 72. The book is set from late 70s to early 80s. Okay, all right. right. (laughs) There is 
these events that they were historically remember. <laughs> but then, no, the book is set basically 79, 81, basically. But, okay, as far as I'm concerned, none of my generation, this is me slightly, not attacking you, but, you know, slightly Go on. questioning you. Do it, mate. We would have never looked up to Perry Como. But now, you, we, you, were, you were a post, I think, well, that's the hand where you were. You're kind of post-rock and roll. Yeah. I, had, a lot I, of I, I had long hair in 72. But you've got to realise that, oh, no, you know what? I know what you're referring to. Because as a thing, I think it was someone says in 72 was the first time I saw a hippie. So you turned up with long hair and they saw you. So 72 hippies were appearing. But my <laughs> point is, Belfast was culturally behind the times. And it was. You did not see hippies in 72. It's not as if hippies were like 67 starting communes in Belfast. Yeah, 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 That's yeah, not yeah, how it yeah, happened. Yeah, yeah, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And a lot of these people were pre-rock and roll. I, I know they were. I know they were. But I can see them my age. I, and I don't want to get down to some user thing. But I was into Van Morrison. And see, Van Morrison was from Belfast. And although he's a proddy, he, we all liked Van Morrison. Everybody liked Van Morrison. But you were in a more cultural milieu, I would say. A lot of these IRA guys and Republican guys that I got to know through my family had no fucking idea about contemporary culture, art, literature, blah, blah, blah. And they didn't know Van songs. Morrison? No, they had no idea. They had no idea. And they would have hated it. They would have absolutely hated it. And they saw, because I think their idea of culture was something to aspire to. And something should be better than them. So my dad accepted that he's a rough guy who fought and swore. But culture just should be something to aspire to, was what they believed. So a guy who didn't swear and was always faithful to his wife, well, that's a hero. And I always remember this amazing moment. And I, I, I change it in the book. I say it's Patty Smith pissing in the river. But actually what happened, it was Lou Reed. And it was a song... Um, I think it's on Magic and Lost called Last Great American Whale. My dad was watching it with my mum. And my, my dad was an illiterate Irishman. My mum came from a working class background as well, but was more interested in culture. And she had an epiphany where she got into good music. My dad was still in a coma. We were watching a video by Lou Reed and he's singing uh, uh, um, this song. And he sings this line, uh, they'll shit in a river, dump battery acid in a stream. And my dad leapt up and in a rage, he was like, I'm not going to listen to this crap. <laughs> I like walked out the room. And I remember me and my mum looking at each other. I'm like, that's the rough, roughest bastard we've ever known in our life. And he can't sit through from mild swearing by Lou Reed on a video. <laughs> because his idea of art was it would improve you. It's not like you. It's better than you. You know? And when they come down to your level, you're like, I'm, I'm out here. <laughs> and there's something in that which I can still relate to. Do you know what I mean? Okay, okay. You mentioned there's one word you dropped in there. I'm not arguing with any of that. I accept what, and I understand that. And maybe we should have had Perry Como, but we didn't. Uh, but you said illiterate. Now, in this book, yes, Sammy, the the whose voice it is, he is the Leopold Bloom of this book. Uh, but. Um, Fuck Leopold Bloom, it's Sammy McMahon from now on. If you want to know what you're talking about, say, this is what Sammy McMahon said. Nothing to do with Leopold Bloom, it's gone. Okay. All right? Yeah, I'm already with that. All right, uh, uh, and um, illiterate. Sammy, mm-hmm. anytime he mentions any of his mates, especially Tommy, Tommy's the one he really looks up to, yes. aspires to, he says illiterate. He says he can't read, or, or he's, he's looking at the Reader's Digest, which I grew up with, by the way, That's so I, I, I was a bit sensitive <laughs> yeah. to this. Yeah. Uh, he says he's just pretending to read. Now, why, why does Sammy 
make out that everybody can't read, when obviously Tommy can read. Well, he and can Tommy s- is a smart guy. No, he can semi-read. And I think, um, well, illiteracy is a big thing in my book because um, um, one of the things that I'm going to, we're talking about modernism, you're bringing up Joyce and stuff like that, and again, I'm going back to how... Samuel Beckett. Th- yeah, yeah, exactly, and the instinctive use of language, how illiterate people often, especially with my family who couldn't read or write, would be able to use language in a way which dazzled me and I wanted to live up to that. And that's what I mean by modernism, almost being a natural uh, sort of a, a, a working class expression of who you are. But um, being inarticulate is, is so important in so many ways. And I mean, um, my, my father, again, it goes back to my father, because a lot of the, we'll get on this, a lot of themes are fathers and sons. How do these cycles how are these cycles maintained? And it's always like your inheritance of a father and a son is often what, what maintains these cycles. But one of the things that blew my mind about my father was that although he couldn't read or write, he always encouraged me to read. He would always be, you should read books, you'll go far, you should read books. But then I was like, well, how the fuck would you know? <laughs> how the fuck would you know? You've never read about in your fucking life. And yet you value it. But that blew my mind. I was like, my God, what a... F- He's a fucking Kabbalist. He's a Kabbalist. Faith over reason. Faith triumphing in the world. That's Kabbalistic. It's like, fucking hell, my dad's a Kabbalist. That is mental. Not just that, that he actually thought without an idea of what books could be, he had a vision of a possibility. He's like, you know, you read books, they'll transform your life. So, I began writing these books and I began thinking to myself, actually, my dad's dead now. And actually, one of the sad things is he died before I published any of my novels because I would have loved him and think that the son of a lot of Irishman was publishing like novels in favour and favour, which would have been mental. But um, one of the things about it was just that um, is uh, taking that language somehow and um, oh, what am I, I, mean, I, I want to get this right because I'm talking about my dad. Um, I decide I made a decision, and I thought. What does my dad think books are? How transformative must he believe their potential is? Even if he can't read, he's got a fantasy. Read a book, it'll change your life. And I was like, do you know what? See if you read most books, it's going to fucking change your life. They would have disappointed my dad. I feel as if here, dad, there's, a list, there's the most recent literary success. He would have been like, what the fuck? This is what we were learning to read for. So I made a vow. And I said, I will write novels that will live up, I hope, to an illiterate person's fantasy of the power of literature. (laughs) (laughs) Come on, you know? Okay, uh, on that subject, Sammy lying on the blanket with his dad looking up at the stars with his brother. That's, he, he has this bit in the book where he describes lying on this blanket in the back garden or wherever in wherever looking up the stars yeah in Belfast in the so, yeah, yeah. so so is that in your life um slightly it is a little bit and one of the things I wanted to talk about is how an illiterate father with no knowledge of the world can still initiate you into knowledge of the world through love purely through love but it's a mess education at that point when I'm lying in the bank, I don't know if you remember, Bill, but the dad points up to the stars and he says every star is a planet just like ours. But no, they're not made, they're, they're <laughs> But at the same time, fuck it, fuck it. Oh, yeah. Isn't that beautiful? 
And he made me, and this, this did happen to me. I was lying in the bucket. My dad, and my dad did say that line, and I remember that moment. And I remember looking up at the stars, lying in our back garden, and thinking, "My God, on every star, there's a dad and a son looking at us, <laughs> saying, wow. Well, um, every star is a every is a planet just like ours.' I'm glad. I'm glad that's for real. Then that is, that is for okay. real. Okay. Now, now this is a, it's a miseducation, but it's so fucking beautiful. But it, and I'd rather have that actually, because that's a real dad. He makes up shit to make you feel better. <laughs> the that's what dads do. Okay. You can figure it out when you're an adult, but let your dad, you know, nail that shit. You know what I mean? Okay, this is a sensitive bit now. All right. So your brother, he's older than you. Younger, I'm the oldest. Oh, you're the oldest. Okay, in the book, Sammy has an older brother who turns out to be gay. And that's a, that's a very difficult issue for the father. Yes. And, uh, and, and I just you know, wondered from that, if your brother, had you, and your family, had you gone through that? Did I have a gay that, brother? And, and, <laughs> and that difficulty. And, and in the book, he goes off to America, does he? He goes off to Canada. Canada yeah, yeah. yeah. No, no, no. I know I did. I do actually. And I named that brother after my real brother, Peter, who is my real brother. Okay. But my real brother is not actually gay. Okay. But, but I imagined how difficult it would be. As much as I loved my dad, and, and he was a loving person, I wondered how challenged he would be if one of his sons had it turned out gay. So I, I wanted to like riff with that a little bit. Okay. There's a bo- there's a point in the book. Where Sammy, you know, Sammy, uh, 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 who you've got used to, he's, he's the voice of the book, talks about his first smoke in a joint. And uh, they got paid for some, some, something. They well, a bag of grass. A bag yeah. of grass. And he goes home and he rolls a joint. And none of them, are, this is his first time. And he rolls a joint. And, and it describes what happens. And he's, he looks in the mirror and his face disappears. Yes. Is this based on your experience or not? Um, yes and no. I've had strange moments of prophecy involving drugs in the past where I've kind of glimpsed things and when they come back, I have a weird frizz on. I know they call it a flashback, but I've definitely had moments where I've like, wow, I visioned that on drugs 15 years ago and now it's back here. But I have to say, I will tell you a short story which is that is slightly based on uh, when my, my house in Airdrie, my, well, I, I, used to, I, I grew up in East End of Glasgow, but I moved to Airdrie, which was my first book was set, Memorial Device. And a weird, we actually did have... Can, can, can I just say, Airdrie, Newtown, isn't it? No, 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 it's not Newtown, it's an old town. Oh, right, That's sorry. why it's interesting. It's not coming all their shit, or these Cabride, it's an old historic town. But we did outside toilet. And uh, my mum, this is a great story, and this is what it's based on. My mum uh, believed that she was having the first signs of ME. And it seemed like she maybe was, and she was in a lot of trouble. And um, we were hanging out with some like drug dealers at the time and shit. And my mum randomly, go ahead. It's his beer. <laughs> I just grabs her beer halfway through her fucking anecdote. <laughs> so, um, she said to me, by the way, I've, I've looked it up and apparently, like, if you've got ME, like, marijuana can help. So I was like, you want me to get your marijuana cigarette? She was like, yeah. She was like, make sure your dad's out for the night because he'll fucking kill me if I think I'm doing drugs, which he would have. <laughs> so she was, she was outside toilet. So my mum, I was like, I left her with this joint. It was a bit of grass. It wasn't even skunk. I mean, it wasn't even that strong grass. I was like, have a, I was like, take two hits, 
and see how you do. So anyway, I left her, went back home. Next day, she phones me up. She's like, uh, I smoked up that marijuana of yours. I was like, how did you get on? She's like, well, I thought I was going to die. I was like, why? She's like, well, I went out to the outside toilet because I was feeling weird. And then when I got to the outside toilet, I realised that I was paralysed and I collapsed on the floor. And she said, and then I felt the gravity of the world and, and it wouldn't let me rise from the floor. But then I realised there was no heat in the outside toilet and I was going to die of exposure because it was like fucking January. And she was like, I heard your brother coming in, didn't even know I was out there, went to his bed. She was like, six hours later, a man, she stand up and stagger to bed. Have you ever heard of anyone smoke marijuana being paralysed for five hours? But that actually happened and she nearly died. So I was like, that's going to go into a book, mate. No, so it's a verse like that, do you know what I mean? Okay. I'm got, when I started doing these notes and I thought it was going to be 40 questions and then I just got more mm-hmm. there was just more and more quotes in the book and I'm thinking fucking hell this is this is this is defines where we're at in literature to give it the big word yeah. uh, I'm going to I'm going to read a quote the Virgin Mary is higher up in the pecking order than the Holy Ghost yep fact fact now me being you know Presbyterian we go who the fuck's a Virgin Mary anyway? But where did this come from? <laughs> um, because I believe, um, um, I think as a man, I had some of my most initiatory experiences being involved with women. And I realised that I had so much to learn from my experiences with other women. And I realised that the initiatory people in their life are often the opposite sex or people who come from very different places than you. And I began to think the Holy Ghost is one thing, but how are you initiated? The Virgin Mary. And that's why Presbyterian is so male. No, it's not male. It realises there's something lacking in the male that looks for the female to fulfil. Yeah. I don't think that's true at all. It's quite the opposite. Yeah, I'm talking about initiatory experiences with women, which is necessary for men. I'm moving on to another quote in the book. He's, he's, Sammy's been asked some questions and say, you know, and, and he said, so what's the capital of Scotland? And, 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 and Sammy goes, Glasgow, Glasgow. You know, obviously. And, 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 uh, and, you know, and there's a lot of people that would say that. And, and, I, and in my head, it's like, if you're asking, what's the capital of Ireland? I'd say, Belfast. Of course. Know, fuck that. that. You know, what's that? You know. And, um, so, but where does that come from? Well, there's something about cities where I think if you make a city a heritage place, you kind of inoculate it and you make it safe. And so the raw cities, the outlaw cities, they're the true capitals, and everyone knows that. And it's almost like a sort of diversion, like a bluff. Yeah, mate, go to Edinburgh experience in Scotland, because it's fucking really happening over here. Yeah, enjoy <laughs> Dublin, mate, do you know what I mean? Because the initiatory thing is happening in Belfast, you know? It's a capital because you go there and the experience is transformative. I mean, you know, I like to go to Edinburgh for like one day, it's kind of fine, but it seems to me like a Hollywood facade where if you look behind the buildings, there's like bits of fucking sticks, prop them up, do you know what I mean? And I feel the same about Dublin, you know? Different rules apply. The best cities are where different rules apply, where you step into a thing that almost feels like an autonomous zone. And that's what I love. Airdrie, Belfast, Glasgow, autonomous zones. Okay, I I have to put in here a, a personal bit here. So, the age of three, when my mother's pregnant with my younger, my younger, my younger brother, and uh, you know, and I'm thinking, and, and I couldn't sit in her lap, and this was like, I can't sit in your lap anymore because she's, I had issues already before he was even born, 
<laughs> but the day after he is born, I get taken to Belfast. Belfast is the first city I've ever seen. Because where I come from in Scotland, in the southwest, it was easier to get to Belfast than to Glasgow or Edinburgh. Because all we had to do was hop on the train to Stranraer, yeah. get the ferry to Larne, and then we were into Belfast. Yeah. So, so from... 1957, Belfast was the city. You know, Belfast, basically, it's not even the capital of Ireland. It was the capital of the world. I can believe it. <laughs> I believe it. So everything about Belfast, and then it was just ongoing. Belfast, Belfast, Belfast. You know, and, 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 and Belfast has never stopped for me. Going back to when I was saying about being in the Europa, looking across, I think, that top floor of the Europa was the first time I'd been in a high rise. Really? Looking, wow. looking across. And the Europa is a, is a hotel, one of its claim to fame is the most bombed hotel in the world, other than somewhere in the Beirut, you know? Yeah, it's the most bombed hotel in Europe, perhaps. But, but yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, but it was the first sort of modern building that I'd ever been in. And, and, and to go in when I was, when I used to stay there, it was, you'd have to go through all these body search, you know, you'd have the, the, the British soldiers, you know, you'd go through, and, and you'd write, and you go up in the left to the top floor, and, and it's like this other world, this other, and you could see all, and it was like the modern world for me. Yeah, it was yeah like, I hear was, you, it makes sense, Bill. Anyway, the power, I'm supposed to ask you to read something. You want me but, to do it now, or do you want to ask me a question? You tell me. Just, just, uh, uh, power... Invisibility. Can, can I, I want to read something from here. I want to... This is one of the things, it's a recurring theme in the book. The snake. And, 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 I, and I have this whole thing about the snake slash the serpent slash, you know, whatever's in the tree, tempting man saying, oh, have a bite of the apple. Yes. You know? And, and so that's one of the recurring things in the book in different ways. Yes. So I am... Totally, as soon as that's in, I'm, I'm, I'm here with this guy. You know, I'm, mm. I, I, I'm yeah. you know, and, and 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 he's having it. And, and this is something I haven't thought about before. <laughs> you know, the whole maybe you don't know this. Saint Patrick kicked out all the snakes of Ireland. Ireland. Yeah. That was that's what that's why he's a saint. That's why he gave him the sainthood because he kicked out the the snakes from Ireland. And he's having it in this book. That was maybe Saint Patrick's big mistake. So. Slightly, is it? Is that what you're saying? But then you got. I mean, these things. I've got to find this quote. It's just one of the ones. A blind snake with all its bones broken is the pain at the center of the world. Yes. Okay. There is a blind snake, and I began to think of Northern Ireland and Ouroboros continually swallowing its tail. But I also came with this idea of evil. This idea of evil. People say evil. The snake in the garden is evil. And one of the things I began to realize is. Is language part of the fall? Is when we define you and me, we're separate. This is this. This is not me. Is language part of um, of the fall in some kind of way? But then I want to talk about evil. I want to talk about evil. Is evil really possible? And you know the revelation I came to with this book: don't believe in evil. After going through a book where people are tortured, massacred, suffering is put on a pedestal, I began to realise two things. One. Suffering and death are in league with life. They're fucking in league with life. Death is the same as like the two hands of God. There is this duality here. Suffering and death are not evil. 
They are not against life. Rather, they're the price we pay for life. They're the price we're forced to pay for life. Quite dramatic, quite amazing. So I I began to have this revelation that um, (coughs) the evil doesn't exist. And I began to think, well, what would be evil? What What would evil consist of? And I began to think, evil consists of something that's incompatible with the furtherance of life. And then I thought, do you know what's evil? Time travel. <laughs> think about it. Imagine if we had time travel. You'd be going back, like, sorting out like, the fucking like, grudge you had 20 years ago. You'd be going back killing Hitler. You'd be going back doing this. And do you think it would make us any better? No, it wouldn't. Because I think time travel is something that's against, that is, that is not in league with life. But suffering and death are. Okay. And if, you know? Okay, I've got to throw something else. It's one of the other... I can't find the quote now, all right? But it is genius. It's saying, it's, it's, the Sammy comes to the conclusion that snakes travel through time in a different way to us humans. Yes. Exactly, that's the point. Because their heads are in the future and their tails are in the past. And so, in other words, they know history and they can tell history. Snakes are evil because of that. Not, not, they're not evil, because I don't believe evil exists in the world. But they symbolise the potential evil, which is a head in the future and a tail in the past. And they realise they're caught up in it. And they realise they're caught up in this Ouroboros, this head eating his tail all the time. And they worry about that. And he says, and in a way, what he says is, imagine if we could go, imagine if Sammy could go back and transform all that suffering and save everyone in the book. That would be evil. And at the end of the book, he kind of comes to the conclusion where he was like, you know what? We played our roles perfectly. We played our roles perfectly. What more do you have to do? Suffering is related to you. Death is a reality. What more can you do? Play your role perfectly. And what, I, what, what amazed me of people in Belfast and Northern Ireland in the 1970s was even that funny tale and the way they were able to joke about it. They were like, this is it. This is it. We do not need an end to the troubles. We do not need heaven. <laughs> we do not need the dictatorship of the fucking proletariat. We're able to say right now, this is enough to affirm, even as we're suffering, even as we're in the middle of violence, even as we have to deal with these things, we can still say yes. Because you know what? That's your fucking choice. Because life feeds on life. Yes or no, your choice. Okay, I've got to say something about snakes here. All right? I mean, he's been to... Just the reality. Maybe some people have not watched Snakes here. <laughs> but I remember when I was in the Boy Scouts, not the Boy, Bra- the Boy uh, Brigades, okay? Uh, when, I was in the bo- uh, uh, when, when I was in the, the Boy Scouts, as, as, or the, no, this was the Cub Scouts, I remember lifting up a, a log, and underneath the log was an adder. And this adder was all curled up like this. And it just unslowly curled up and went its way away. And that just vision, I just think, this is so like nothing else. I mean, I've I've looked at every animal, bird, insect, yeah. whatever this country has, but nothing is like that. Yeah. But then I watched a grass snake when I was fishing. A grass snake is bigger, an adder's only about that size. A grass snake can be about that size. And the grass snakes swim across the water. When you see a grass snake swim across a river, you know, yeah, I mean, you can totally understand why whoever wrote Genesis. Yeah, oh, yeah Snake in the Garden. It's just the album. Snake in the Garden. Oh, Snake in the Garden. I, I, mean, I, I, I thought we were talking about Genesis albums then. 
but it is the alienating oh. and the hoops is on off on off oh. there's something weird about that the way it moves through time it's, snake is the greatest animal metaphor for how time evolved or rivers as we talked about but yeah um, now, now there's two things that I wanted to ask him about in the book one Sammy ends up in London and, uh, and, and experiences these things which he goes to which is about uh, and I don't know if any of this is true. Where, where does this come from? Um, I don't it's, to do, it's to do with pain. It's to do yeah, with, well, the, I, you tell the, the idea I have in the book, I mean, if this was to be revealed to be true, <laughs> and you never know when he would be born, but I had the theory that there was an inner order of the IRA, like an inner mystic order called the URA, URA. In other words, both beginnings, URA, both beginnings. But that was convinced that it took suffering to maintain the world. And that's an idea of like when mystics or like penitents like hang off a cliff by one toe, they're almost convinced that suffering is something that we trade in for existence. So I invented the IRA's holy orders who are torturing people to create the future. What a fucking amazing idea, because you know what? Suffering does create the future. Love also creates the future, but so does suffering. All these things are sort of in a cahoots to create reality. But the IRA become focused on this one thing. It's almost like you can torture the future. So the bit where you've got Sammy's father, it's like Sammy's looking back at his childhood and he remembers his father disappearing and coming back. And when his father comes back, he's beaten up, he's, he's, he's been through something. What's that about? Well, it, what happens is he actually he pulls down his trousers and it's the first time that his kid has ever seen his father's cock. And it turns out it's wrapped in barbed wire. And there and there's all these theories. Opus Day, I mean, Opus Day do like torture their own genitals and shit like that. But um, he says, um, the father says to him, um, um, what does the father say? He says something like, I can't, uh, I can't remember. Um, don't you remember when Jesus removed his hands from the cross to show his disciples his wounds. Father says that. And in a way, that's what I'm going back to, how fathers initiate you. Fathers initiate you and how to transmute suffering. Because guess what? Every one of you is going to suffer. So wouldn't it be a great lesson from your father? If he a great what? Redeem, a great lesson oh, from lesson, your father lesson. to redeem suffering. And one of the big things about the book is about redemption. How do you live in this terrible torturous, violent situation and still say yes? Do you wait till it's solved and then your life's a misery? No, you don't. You somehow are able to say yes even with suffering. You're able still to affirm it and say that suffering itself perhaps... I always, I was thinking of this thing today and you know remember when you like hold someone you love so much and you, 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 you cradle their head in your palm and you stroke their face and you say, it's okay baby, it's okay. Without suffering, you'd never be able to fucking do that. So I'm like, thank you, suffering. <laughs> I miss you, but I was able to cradle your arms See, and say it's okay. Lee's telling us to finish now. All right. I, 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 how long are we done? Yeah, we need some questions. Questions. Fuck, fuck questions. We don't need them. <laughs> We're the one that asked the questions. The shelf has requested questions. What's the time? After eight, five minutes. I, I, I've got to ask him a couple of questions yet, Okay. Okay, All right. we can do it. Okay. Phil, you got five minutes. Pardon? Five minutes. All right, let's do that. I can answer, I can answer questions pretty quickly, then we'll do answers. Yeah, okay. All right. Where else? Okay, there's a, bit, there's a bit in the book where Sammy goes out to the countryside. 
they want to collect, Sammy and Tommy, what, I think it's Sammy and Tommy, they want to collect <laughs> these, these, these paintings of scenes. Sniper at Works. Sniper at Works. Yeah. And then they, they get, they, they find themselves in this barn, in this, in this, in this farm, and there's this guy who's all his skin's burnt off, and he starts talking about art, and what is art, and, 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 and obviously it's to do with the snake leaving its skin behind exactly. each year, yes, and yes. all that. I don't know what the question is, but my question to you is, you want, is there a bit in, in the book you can read? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> that was a beautifully circuitous uh, approach to that, but I really like it. Um, let me see. I think there's maybe one I can, that actually relates to that. that um, hold on. Um, actually, let me, I'd, I'd, like, I'd like to read this um, section about swans. I don't know if you remember. There's a guy oh, called yeah. the swan. Yeah, 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 yeah. That is phenomenal. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, of course. Okay, yeah. so what happens is um, um, Tommy and Sammy go on the run. They, 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 um, they, try, they attempt to blow up the Europa. It goes strangely wrong. I got to get them out of the country and they got to go down to um, London at the time. And actually... Leave. They go to Glasgow first. They go to Glasgow first and they have an orgy. It turns into a bloodbath. <laughs> then they escape again. And it's funny because my, actually my editor, Lee, uh, this is one section in the book when... No, no! <laughs> it's so funny because Lee was like, mate, why don't they go to Kentish Town? And it was as simple as that and I saw a row of section in Kentish Town and it made so much sense. So this is a guy called the Swan who's basically a sort of head of a, of a sort of a covert IRA uh, cell that's, that's, that's based in... Uh, in uh, London, so I'll read you a little bit about just their experience with the swan. So, uh, the swan takes us back to his. Actually, do you know what? You're not going to change your mind. No, no, I'll, I'll go. Okay. The swan takes us back to his. You should have seen the state of this place. Tommy's dad called ahead and arranged everything. We were bedding down with two blokes from Liverpool in the back room of this squat in Queen's Crescent. Four mattresses on the floor, balls lying everywhere, no shower. You can use the YMCA for that, one of the guys says to us. This obvious homo called Rick, no danger. We spent most of our evenings in a pool hall on the Holmes Road, name a paradise, playing for money. What paradise is this? We dreamt ourselves into it. That says to Tommy. What kind of garden is this? I says to him that night. Swan's mate for life. Do you realise that, son? That's how the swan gets his name. The eyes of a swan are inscrutable. This is what this cunt I'm playing pool with says to me. Inscrutable. Couldn't name a blackie. Must have been six foot two. The eyes of a swan, he says to me, are as black as hell's gates. The swan's partner was killed in action. That's all he says to me. None of the specifics. But he's been faithful ever since, he says. By this point, the swan is half blocked and he has his arm around Tommy and is singing in his ear. I catch a line of it. An old Irish folk song about a widowed swan looking back across its life and recalling the still faraway locks that it had sailed over with its long-lost partner. The great flowing rivers that were a part of them and that delivered them in the future. The green Irish fields down there beneath the two of them. Are there swans in Belfast? Blackie says to me. And everything feels like it is in code. Being a swan. A swan in Belfast. 
The swan is on his feet now. I dreamt I was a swan, he's singing. Floating on the tide. His long ago partner and himself. Past long abandoned mansions. Like up in the Malone Road. All overgrown with trees. And misty wet with rain. And with thick vines hanging down. And there's another sort of bird living in this song. A bird that moves to greet the swans. All in this song. Where they have been expected for such a long time. And they are led along a path. In the shadow of tall fir trees. And isn't it a pity? Isn't it a shame? Of course it's tragic. Of course it is strange. Because we're swans. He sings. To the whole room now. And what do swans need with a mansion? With a house with a butler and a maid? And the swans are led into a library. A library all piled high with books. And the swans look around. And on every shelf they see. There was everything they could have dreamt of reading. Stories of all their friends as they were growing up. The memories of their parents as little birds themselves. Birds themselves. Birds themselves. He descended down the scale. Poems by their brothers and sisters. Bird poems. Poems by Yonkers. Accounts of the uprising of grandfathers. The rising up of old swans. And the things that happened in the moment of them. The moment of them. The moment of them. He shakes his head as he declaims. And the swans, this pair, they turn to each other. These beautiful black-eyed birds. And it's like a joke to them. A terrible, sad joke. That they were born swans. And had no way of making sense of any of it. For swans cannot read, I says to my lover. And this is the swan singing now. And my lover looks back at me with those eyes of his. Those eyes of his as he sings. And my lover, he asks me whether one day when he passes, maybe he could be turned into a book. But I won't be able to read it, my lover, my long lost. I won't be able to read you, my dear. It's how sings the swan. In return, back in the flat in Kentish town, Tommy's chest rising and falling inside of his face in the light of cigarettes next to me on the floor in the dark. I'm imagining us landing on water together and how it is soft between our legs. 1977, and how we sail off, silent, and without a thought. Questions? There's a a, a woman now. Thank you. I really enjoyed that. I've heard you read before, David, but I just think you're such a good reader. I don't, I don't want to read your book. I'd really like it if there was an audio book so we can hear you. Because I just want to hear your voice. No. And I also want to say, I've been to many events at this bookshop. It's a fantastic bookshop. 
but events should have this kind of energy in them because I've, I've most events I, I'd rather read the book than come to the event. But this has just been you are really something, and I'm really pleased I came tonight. Thank you. Oh, very much. thank you, Laura. That's it. No comment. <laughs> <laughs> the fan of comment. <laughs> David, an in, yeah. in Memorial Device, you yeah. created an amazing set of fictitious bands. Your bands I wanted in my record collection. Oh, bands yeah. I was disappointed not to be able to listen to. And, yeah. and Bill, you've also created loads of fictitious bands in your time, from, from Carnivala. That's questionable. But, <laughs> but I just wonder what it was that drew you to fictitious bands, and why it is you think people don't write about fictitious authors? Fictitious authors? And what drew me to fictitious bands was I began to think, um, can anything re- really live up to the idea of the best band ever? And it's funny because when we did Memorial Device, a lot of people were like, um, uh, uh, what did music? Like, uh, Weatherall, Richard Young's and things like that. But the one thing I didn't want them to do was Memorial Device because it's beyond, it, it, it's beyond, it's a myth. It's that excitement of, oh my God, they took it so far, but there's no document of them whatsoever. And I wanted to ha- get the idea of the mythical, legendary band who you can never, ever hear. But, I mean, Memorial Doubts are my favourite group. I've kind of got an idea of how they sound. I've never quite heard them, but I'm totally in love with it. This mythic group where they nailed it completely, died and disappeared, and were flawless in their career. I just kind of wanted to make it. And I wanted to have them come from Airdrie, you know? Anyone else? Why no fictitious authors? It's coming up, mate. <laughs> Tune in for the next couple of books. <laughs> I've, I actually, I have got interested in that, actually. And actually, in my next book, which is coming up, there, there is actually sections of the book which are written by the, the characters in the book. So, actually, I'm, I'm kind of getting into that. So <laughs> this is done. Yep. Uh, the book is very violent. Um, You've read it? Yes. <laughs> there, is, there is a lot of depiction of violence. I'm reading the book um, in light of Brexit and talk about borders and possibility of returning to those times. It frightened me. Were you similarly, are you frightened by what may happen about the loss of the peace and all of that? No. Good. I will take comfort from this. I'm shit scared. And, and that is something I, I'm having to deal with right now because I actually think it could trigger a lot of stuff. But it's anyway, fragile, isn't it? But there's nothing to do fragile. with this book. That's, that's me. If David well, says... Well, 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 let me say, let me make this point. I have no uh, um, uh, commitment or, or, uh, to things be better or worse. I actually don't care. I have a thing, one of the things I've had a revelation in my life is I be, I, I've realised that I'm essentially a religious writer. And the reason for that is I have faith. And faith is not an idea or an ideology. In other words, faith is not something that if things go this way or that way, I'll say it's right or wrong. I have faith, which means I let go and I let things happen. And I've also realised that extreme trauma and very, very difficult things can also be revelatory. And I guess I'm getting back to the point where I'm talking about how I don't believe in evil. I do believe there is a combination of difficulty and suffering that actually supports life. I've always got this idea. This is my thing. 
Imagine if your fucking life story was written by you. Mate, I don't want to read that fucking book. Do you know what I mean? Because I know what it would be. Uh, I'm dead handsome, super successful, married the chick of my dreams, dead successful, I got loads of money, died. Mate, see if they were to make a film on that wife, I'd walk out halfway through. I'd be like, this is fucking boring. So my whole thing is, these are the things that make your life fucking exciting. Joseph Campbell has got a great quote. He's like, you know what? You might not have the best seat in the house, but surely you've got to admit, what a fucking show. That's my faith. Just on that, uh, have you been religious in the past, you know, in the times when in Airdrie, and is, it, is there still remnants of that? Well, I mean, you know what? I was brought up quite religious. I was sent to Sunday school and I went to church every day when I was a kid. So I know the Bible pretty well. But I like that because I think the Bible was as a great grounding for literature. And I love... Um, uh, the sort of rhythm of the Bible and I love the, the Kabbalistic rhythm, that biblical kind of rhythm. It appeals to me. I love to read that sort of stuff still. And I, I would hope that my books, I think my books have a similar rhythm to perhaps religious texts because I, I grew up with that. And it was great, but I'm, 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 I'm non-orthodox. And that's what I mean by true faith. I don't believe in any one religion. I have absolute faith in the, in the rightness of reality. But I'm fascinated by the spiritual ways that we can learn from religion. I'd like to add something in here, and it's something uh, a friend of mine from Edinburgh actually, uh, uh, who had said to me, <laughs> says there was a point what happened in popular music when punk happened and disco happened. It, it was the first point where the Bible wasn't a reference; it, it, it was accepted. Up until that point, the Bible was known by everybody, and I mean, not not you know completely every fucking chapter and verse. Yeah. But it was there in all of our, the, all of the R&B traditions and the popular music over here. It was just accepted. And I know I grew up, I'm of an age, so I grew up with all of that biblical stuff. And I know that informs me personally. But it's not that I'm some card-carrying member of any particular whatever, but I know it, it, it is there and... and, and and something about that is just in, it goes beyond that. It's intriguing. And conversations that we've had just before. Yeah. Oh, well, let me say one thing about what I believe that religious impulse is. I believe that religious impulse has been bastardized and becomes like a bunch yeah. of moral rules. Yeah. But I actually believe the ultimate religious impulse is to have awe at the miracle Absolutely. that is happening Absolutely. in front of us. And I'm sorry that religion has got in the way of that, but it's ultimate religious impulse is that the miracle is happening every fucking second. And I, one of the things I think that me and Bill have in common that I think is that we're, we're very interested in ritualising experience. And I think these rituals are used to remind us of how fucking miraculous and endlessly possible Reality is I've that's got, a religious impulse. I've I got, believe. I've got to. I've got to quote. I've got to read a quote from the book here. It's just one of the most moving things. And I, can I find it? I won't be able to find it. Oh, fuck, fuck, fuck. Where, where is it? It's the bit about. Oh shit! You, you carry on talking. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's about saying, saying yes. 
This is, the, this is the big challenge of your life. How do you say yes? Because this is what you're asked to do in the face of all that. And I guess my whole thing that I don't like about religion or politics is religion will say, if we get to this certain point, then it's okay to say yes. This book was like, why is it okay to say yes to a war zone in fucking Belfast when your family are being murdered? Why can you still not say yes? Well, it's a huge challenge. Of course you, you can't. But can you? all these things are things that challenge us. The adventure. I think Goats of Kim calls it the call to adventure. Okay. Are you up for it? I, f- I found a bit. So I'm quoting him here from the book. But I'm quoting Sammy talking. I, know what, I think I know what you're going to okay. quote. That's not what God on earth was made for. What was God on earth made for? God, God's earth was made for pulling up next to the sea in dark and shagging your bird in the back seat of your car. That's what God's earth was made for. And look what he did with it. Look at what he fucking did with it. <laughs> I mean, I mean that, that sounds like some sexist bullshit, but there's something in that. That, that, that actually, that experiencing... Expe- oh, fucking hell. <laughs> uh, and then I've got, I've got, to, I've got, to, I've got to read another bit. Okay, right, do, no, I'm any about, I'm loving it. Do your thing, man. <laughs> After two hours, I give up and I go to leave. But before I go, I look around and I look at at the wee bit. This, 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 this is Sammy. He's gone back to where he'd been having this affair with this, this, this woman who he thinks has been having a fit. I mean, it's, it's very complicated. <laughs> and, and, and if this sounds like a man's book, there's all sorts of other stuff going on. It's not just killing and shooting and, and stuff. He goes back to... Uh, what's the name of the place? By the sea? Where does he go back to? Carrick Fergus. Carrick Fergus. And if you know your romantic songs, you know, we won't sit down to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he goes back there... And he sees his bench where him and Kathy, 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 Kathy had sat on, and yeah. he thought, he, you know, it was like the real thing and all that. Uh, after two hours, I give up because he's supposed to be meeting her there. Yep. He thinks he's going to be meeting her. Yep. After two hours, I give up and I go to leave. But before I go, I look around and look at at the wee bench one last time. That wee bench that had waited all its life for the two of us. That view that we kept only for us. I go to leave, but then I have a mad thought. I've got my Chatsby. Chatsby, you explain. So, well, it's, it's, it's a sort of euphemism that a lot of the IRA use for like a small handgun that you stuck down your trousers. Uh, and, a lo- and a loyalist, actually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> leave. I, and then I have a mad thought. I got my Chatsby stuck down the band of my trousers and I thought about taking it out and loosing a few bullets into the sea. I thought about shooting the fucking waves dead. I had to laugh. Now that that, that thing that he's written about shooting the waves dead, that somehow just... Just... Maybe we should end it there. Is there one more question? Um, it, It doesn't have to end. We can... Buy some books and come and talk to you both. Is that okay? Yeah, yeah, totally. And if you don't come and buy the book after that, we'll be terribly disappointed. <laughs> Everyone, please, David Keenan and Bill Drummond, thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. 
world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.